title of my message should have changed it probably. Don't trip over the cornerstone. It's certainly a part of the section of Mark that we're going to be looking at. Jesus as the cornerstone, not being what people expected him to be and becoming the stumbling block, or they would trip over this. They couldn't see what stood right before them because of, well, lots of reasons. Preconceived ideas of who the Messiah should be or what he should look like. But also they stumbled and tripped over him because they didn't like necessarily what he taught. Humankind has always liked our own way. But I think maybe a better title might have been something to the effect that God loves his church. God loves his vineyard. We're going to be looking at a parable Jesus spoke where it talks about the vineyard. And there is a lot of symbolism in this parable that applies to the people he was directly talking to at that time. But I also believe it can apply to us as his church and as individuals within his church. If you would think of the vineyard as we look at this as as the church now, and you and I as part of that church, part of the fruit of that church, he's actually talking, going to be talking to the religious leaders, and he's actually talking about the Jewish church or Judaism as a whole. So we're going to be looking at that. I want to give a little context. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. If you have Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. We're going to be looking at uh, the first, well, probably end up with all 12, first 12 verses. But to give us a little background, we are getting close in the gospel of Mark to the time where Jesus is going to be murdered on a cross. The triumphal entry, or what we call the triumphal entry, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the back of that colt of a donkey. And the people are, are cheering and yelling and putting their cloaks on the ground and they're riding on that over their cloaks and they're shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Hosanna, meaning save us. Save us. And you can imagine as the people are yelling these things and chanting these things, the religious leaders are not very excited about what's going on. Whoever this guy is, this Jesus, he is a pain in their lives. The people are all excited about him, about who he is, that this Jesus that we've heard so much about is in Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We've heard about what he's taught. We've heard about his miracles. We've heard he raised people from the dead. Matter of fact, we heard just a mile from town here up at Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Who is this guy? And he's a problem. He's a problem. Jesus, when he got into town that first time in on the, that day, it tells us that he went to the, the temple. And it tells us really all he did when he went to the temple was he just kind of looked around. He looked around what was taking place in the outer courts and the inner courts. He looked around at all of the, the, the money changing that was going on, things that were being bought and sold, and how people were being taken advantage of. He observed all of this. But it says he didn't do a thing about it that day. It says he went back up to Bethany. And it also tells us that the city was just getting more and more excited. And the religious people were getting more and more angry, fearful. We see different words that with great indignation, they started to plot against him. How can we get rid of this? And finally, we hear simply, how do we kill this guy? He's a threat. He's a challenge. 
We also see just previous to this section of scripture that when Jesus was walking to Jerusalem the one day, he, he saw a, a, a bush, a tree, and it was all, had all its leaves on it. And he says, let's go over there, I'm hungry. And when he got there, what did he find? No fruit. A tree with leaves that should have had fruit, but it had no fruit. Again, a picture. Just get this in your mind. It's a picture. Things, things surrounding the story add to the story. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of Judaism with no fruit. It looks good. They say the right things. They're doing all the sacrifices, but they have no fruit. And then he curses that tree. We need to remember that. He curses it. And he says, you're never going to bear fruit. And we see the next day the disciples see it and it's withered and and they ask Jesus about it again. So all this is taking place. Then he gets down to Jerusalem the second time and now he goes to the temple and this time he's going there with a purpose. This is where we see the righteous anger of God as he, he says he turns the tables. He tips over the tables. He goes through the place making a mess of all the religious things that they're doing. And he finally declares that, you know, his father, my father, has declared that this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And really what he doesn't say is you've turned it into a complete abomination. Again, a picture that things are about to change for Judaism, the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion. And then right before we get to this parable... Some of the religious leaders decide to come and question his authority. Now, you would think by now they maybe just didn't want to, shouldn't have even talked to the guy because every time they tried to trap him or ensnare him, they lose. So they come to him again, and he's coming in, and he's going to the temple, and they say, by whose authority are you doing these things? you got to remember, there wasn't just anybody who couldn't walk into the temple and start teaching. You had to be a rabbi or a priest. You had to be recognized. You just couldn't do these things, much less raising the dead and casting out demons and healing people. By whose authority are you doing these things? And Jesus answers them and says, I'll tell you by whose authority if you'll answer my question. They should have known they were in trouble. Jesus simply asks, Whose baptism? Let's talk about John the Baptist's baptism. Was that from heaven or was that from man? And it tells us they had to talk about it a little bit between themselves because they knew they were in trouble. If they said from heaven, they'd say, then why didn't you listen to him? Repent. But they also knew if he said from, from man, the crowds were not going to be very happy with him. Because the crowds believed that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God. So what did they do? They bailed. We don't know. The most educated religious people in the religion of Judaism, we don't know. And Jesus simply says, "Ah, then I'm not going to tell you. He refused to answer their question about whose authority he was doing these things. And they probably wished in just a few moments that he did not only refuse to tell them by whose authority, but he probably, they probably wish he'd have refused to talk to them at all anymore. Because what he said next, they understood. 
Which brings me to Mark chapter 12. We're going to see as we read this that this group of religious leaders want to kill the Son of God. They want to get rid of him. We will see that they want to steal his inheritance even though they don't understand that. We're going to see that they want to destroy his purpose for what we will see in this parable is his vineyard. Why would they do this? Why would these religious people do these things? Remember, they knew the word. They knew that Old Testament. They knew the prophets. They understood. They knew all these things. They were the ones doing all the sacrifices over and over and over. Why would they do this? Well, there's probably many reasons. Probably the same as are in the hearts of any human. Pride. Their power was being challenged. Their prestige as they've strutted around in all their gowns. Financial gain. The list could go on. Their turf was being challenged. Their identity was being challenged. And they wanted to kill this guy. And they sort of succeed and then they don't succeed. And we know the rest of the story. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And we will be going through these verses, so this is not going to be on the screen right now. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man, just for reference, thank God. A man planted a vineyard, and then he put a wall around it, and then he dug a vat under the wine press, and then he built a tower, and then he rented out the vineyard to vine growers or tenants. And he went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head, or in other words, they stoned him and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, we know when Jesus spoke in parables, he told us kind of the reason. So those that had closed hearts wouldn't understand completely. But in this parable, parable, there's some meaning that these religious leaders would clearly have understood. But they still missed the big picture. The big picture, the real meaning behind all this is repent and be restored. But he knew they weren't going to. So they knew and understood when he started in this parable, the symbolism would not have been lost on these leaders. It wouldn't have been lost on the Jewish people in general. But especially the religious leaders because they knew the Old Testament prophets. I want to read to you from Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 5, written centuries before. And he's prophesying in the form of a parable. And guess what the parable is about? A vineyard. Listen to this, keeping in mind what we just read from Jesus' teaching. This is Isaiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed the stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. It produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, what he's saying right there, judge between me and my vineyard, whose fault is it? Is it mine? Or is it the vineyard's fault? The answer is neither of those. It's the vine dressers. He goes, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done? Why, when I expected to produce good grapes, it did produce nothing but worthless grapes? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I will lay it to waste. I will not be pruned, it will not be hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard represents God's chosen people, the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, But behold, a cry of distress. They knew that parable from Isaiah. So when Jesus started prophesying about a vineyard and a vineyard being planted, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And you even read in Jesus in chapter in Mark and in Matthew, it tells us, "Uh oh, we know he's talking about us. God had a special relationship with his vineyard, his chosen people. God had chosen Israel, not because they were better than anybody else, not because they deserved it. He had chosen Israel, and he loved Israel. God has chosen his church. He has chosen you, and he's chosen me. We didn't deserve it, but he chose us. We are part of his new vineyard called to bear fruit. He loved Israel his chosen people, and he loved his vineyard. So now we're going to go back to Mark. Verse 1. There was a man, and he planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under under the wine press, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. You know, I don't see much of this anymore, but there was a time when a lot of farmers rented ground they didn't get cash rent. You would drive past a cornfield and you'd see a, every, every so often so many rows left. That was the landowners. The landowners had an expectation. And the, the renters 
left it. They took care of it as if it was their own. They watered it. They didn't water it. They tried to water it. They prayed for water. They cultivated it. They fertilized it. They cultivated it. Some of you don't even know what cultivating is anymore. But they used to, they did all of these things. This is what they did. And the landowner would expect a harvest. What I want us to notice in verse 1 is all of the preparation that went into this vineyard. In biblical times, a vineyard was a prized piece of real estate. And it was very common in those times for the actual owner of that land and that vineyard to live many miles away. And he would have tenants, renters, those that would be the vine dressers to take care of it. And this was normal. He would know about when the time of harvest was come, and it would be very common for him to send one of his servants and get a at least a taste of the first fruits of the harvest before he received the fullness of what was going to be his. So this would be normal. They would be thinking about all this as Jesus is starting this parable. And notice again, who did all the work? The landowner. He's the one that prepared the soil. He was the one who planted the vine. He was the one who built the hedge or fence around it to protect it. He was the one who built the wine press. He was the one who built and dug the hole under the wine press to collect the wine. And then, to make sure it was really, really safe and well protected, he builds a tower, a watchtower, so that they could see in any direction if there would be anything coming, whether it be human or animal, to damage the vineyard. The owner did it all. And about this time, the Jewish people, the leaders of the religious people for themselves would realize this is what God did for Israel. He did it all. He called them. He chose them. He brought them out of bondage. He fed them. He watered them. He took care of them with an expectation that they would bear fruit, good fruit, Verse 2, before I read verse 2, all the tenants had to do, all of the, the renters, if you would, was be faithful to what they were supposed to do. To be faithful to taking care of the vineyard. And if they would simply be faithful, God had promised blessings. It would bring glory to him and blessings to those in the vineyard. You can make that application in our own lives as the church and as visuals in the church. Verse 2, at harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. He had an expectation, a legitimate expectation. He expected it to bear forth good fruit, For his glory. After all, he is the one that did all the work. The vine growers were just supposed to take care of it, so he expected good fruit. You know, when God calls you and I, it's by grace that we're saved through faith, right? We don't deserve it. If it wasn't for grace, we wouldn't even know we're supposed to accept Jesus. 
but the Holy Spirit woos us and draws us and, and draws us to that place. And then God extends the grace for us to even to make the right choice. And he asks for us to bear fruit for his kingdom, fruit for his glory. My life, your life, one of the primary purposes of it is to bring glory to God, good fruit. And in the midst of that, bringing good fruit, being faithful, abundant blessings are poured out. Verse 3, they sent the first one there that says they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent them another slave or servant, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and they killed that one. And so with many others, beating some, and killing others. Boy, the, that section of Scripture brings so many questions to my mind when I start to think about it and read it. Some things like, what are the renters thinking? They've kind of come to the conclusion that it belongs to us. They've usurped the authority of the owner and made it their own. We don't need to listen to him. He's not around. And then they totally misused and abused the servants that he sent to check on him. The servants. Now, I sometimes catch on to things really slowly. But about after the first and the second and the third and the fourth servant, when the owner looked at me and said, hey, it's your turn, (laughs) pass. Think about these servants. What could possibly motivate these servants? The first one comes back beaten. The next one comes back after being stoned and he survived the stoning. The third one doesn't come back. They kill him. What could possibly motivate the servants? It must have been one amazing owner. It it must have been someone who could have such loyalty in his followers, his laborers. What in the heck was the owner thinking? I'm running out of servants. What am I going to do next? And it doesn't tell us exactly, but I can't imagine that he's thinking, I've only got my son. It's all I've got left. Do I really want to send him? He's my son. They've beaten, stoned, or killed the others. Surely they'll respect my son. So he sends his son. He sends his son. That landowner was tenacious in trying to get his vineyard to bear fruit, to discover it. In this parable, as the the scribes and chief priests and the religious leaders are listening to this, they know what's going on. They know that the landowner is God. They know that those tenants 
those renters that are supposed to be caring for God's vineyard, they know that that's them. God had set them over His chosen people to watch over them, to protect them, that they might bear fruit. And yet we look at the story and the servants, who were the servants? The servants, we can go back and look at all the Old Testament prophets that were sent by God to get to his people. And their message, though they differed in the way they did it and the words that were said, basically was almost always the same. God loves you. Repent. Come back to him and he will bless you. Just be obedient to him over and over. And if you go through and do a study of the prophets, wow. They were beaten. They were stoned. They had their heads cut off. They were burned alive. The pro- all the way even through modern times, those that God sent to a people are more often than not rejected. And now the landowner sends his son. Why? Because he loved his vineyard. He loved his chosen people. He loves his church. He loves you and he loves me. The owner, God the Father, wasn't surprised at what was happening, right? He knew it. He knew what was going to happen. He had this plan of redemption from the beginning of time. He knew that in just a couple of days, if that, he was going to be murdered on a cross. He knew it was coming. But he did it anyway. So he sends his son and says, surely they will respect my son. I'm going to send my son. The world would certainly receive my son. Those of us that know some of the scripture, went to Sunday school, maybe it brings to mind some scriptures like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but will have eternal life. And in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9, it says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his Son, his only begotten Son, into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for us, to take our place, to pay a price we could never pay. No landowner in his right mind would have kept 70 servants unless there was a greater plan, a greater motivation, a greater desire. He was willing to send his son to secure the harvest Think about this in terms of the church. He was willing to send his son to secure the harvest. Why? Because he loves his church. He loves us. He loves us. But not only to secure his church, his church is the inheritance of his beloved son. The church is his inheritance of his beloved son. He was preparing his bride for his beloved son. What an amazing story. His son had to die so you and I could become sons and daughters.
part of his plan, his motivation. That was God's final word, was his son. Verses 9 through 12. Jesus asks a question and then he answered it himself. He says, what will the landowner of the vineyard do? And I'm pretty certain the religious leaders were not going to answer this question. It says, he will come and destroy the vine growers. And he will give the vineyard to others. Notice the question was, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? Deal with the vineyard? No. He's going to deal with the vine growers and he will give the vineyard to others. One of the most significant aspects of this whole parable. Have you not even read the scriptures? I mean, it's like, God, Jesus, these poor guys haven't got a chance and now you're insulting them. Haven't you even read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to seize him. Yet they feared the people, for he, they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And they left him and went away. What is Jesus telling him when he answers his question? He's telling them and predicting them that he is going to destroy Judaism. He's going to destroy the old way. He's coming with something new and something better. I'm going to give it. To someone else. Who's he giving it to? He's going to give it to us, the Gentiles, as we look in the scripture. So he's not only predicting the destruction of Judaism, he's predicting that there's going to be a new vineyard, a new Israel, a new church. Us. Destroying Judaism, the fig tree was a picture for that. The the cleansing the temple was a picture for that. And then he says, Haven't you even read the scriptures? Now, this was not some obscure scripture, right? I mean, if somebody threw a scripture at you and said, haven't you even read the scripture? You know, in Joel chapter 2, it says this, and you're looking at him like, Joel, where the heck's Joel? This was not one of those obscure scriptures. It's found in Psalms 118, and it's what's called part of the Halal Psalms. What's that mean? It means they sang these, these psalms over and over every single year at Passover. They knew exactly what it said. Psalms 118 verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his eyes. They knew. None of this was new information. The son was sent to secure what belonged to the father. This vineyard exists for his son. The vineyard that was purchased with his own life by his shed blood. And it's the father's gift to the son. I confess, I've read this parable so many times. And that particular thought never came to me. This vineyard was his inheritance. It was a gift from the Father. It was to become his bride. You and I as the bride of Christ. God loves his vineyard. 
God loves his people. God loves his church. God loves you. Sometimes we do not understand how important and precious you and I are in the sight of the Father. He's done all the work. He just asks us to be faithful and produce fruit. The Jewish religious leaders, almost all of them, most of the Jewish people rejected the Son. And Jesus became that stone that they rejected. He became the cornerstone that they stumbled and tripped over because he wasn't what they thought. He wasn't what they expected. And they certainly did not want to follow his instructions. When I read the parable out of Isaiah, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but if you go back and read that in Isaiah chapter 5, you know how it ends? In destruction. In destruction. Judgment. Jesus' parable ends with promise. I'm going to take the vineyard and give it to someone else. His parable ends in grace. The amazing grace of God. In verse 9, as I read, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. We're his church. God has given us a responsibility as his church to bear fruit, to advance his kingdom, to do the work of the ministry, do the things that Jesus did. We talked about some of that this morning, to be a church, not only in love with the Lord, but willing to do what the Lord asks us to do, walking in obedience, walking in power, walking in authority to advance the kingdom and bear good fruit. You know, the depending on your translation, when it talked about worthless fruit or bad fruit, it was a kind of fruit, they called it wild grapes. It was a kind of fruit that looked great, beautiful color. It looked awesome until you bit into it. And it was so bitter. The church can look good on the outside, and on the inside there's just really nothing there. There's all kind of churches, I would dare to say, that there's nothing but wild grapes. We do not ever want to be a church like that. We want to be a church that bears good fruit. He expects faithfulness from his new covenant church. He expects it. He expects us to bear fruit. And we always need to be reminded that the blessings follow our faithfulness not the other way around. As we are faithful and bear fruit, he promises to bless us. So the question is, as individuals and as a church, are we bearing good fruit? Let's close in prayer. Father, we cannot read this story And I hope be in awe of your love. How precious we are in your sight. That you gave your son. That he had to die on a cross, murdered. Innocent, spotless, unblemished. For us. 
that we're anything but that. That no matter who we are, what our past was, if we listen and understand the sacrifice of your son and we repent and surrender our sins to the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We walk in newness of life and are then called to bear fruit for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you will help us by your spirit. Holy Spirit, I invite you to continue to search our hearts, search our lives, bring these things to, to mind, reveal things to us that are hindering our becoming better and better fruit. Give us grace to respond in repentance. Draw us to your word so we can better understand how much you love us and what you want us to to look like as your children. I pray, God, that this would be something that would be on our calendars every day. How do we bear better fruit? And as we answer that question, we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge without you we can't do anything that would bear good fruit. Draw us to your word. We thank you for Jesus. Watch over us as we go. Keep us safe. Give us a keen spirit to respond to your Holy Spirit's voice that we can truly be your witnesses in the world around us. We ask all this, Father, that you would be glorified in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.